Hey, everybody. Welcome to this month's Metal Misconduct. Very apologetic. That's not the correct word of English. Apologize. We apologize for not being with you last month, but you would think the summertime, well, the summertime for me is horrible because there's a million, it's going to be festivals, bands, everything else. Now, Sean should have no excuse of being busy in the summertime, but apparently, Sean, you were so busy that we could not do a podcast. What the hell were you doing? A lot of World Cup planning, man. Uh, this is the one year when every year our summer in hockey seems to get a little bit shorter, but this year is perhaps the worst year in all the years that I've covered hockey, which is coming on a quarter decade now. Um, we're doing the World Cup of Hockey 2016 tournament in September uh, in Toronto. Uh, the summer has been spent um, planning for the coverage of that and uh, all the travel that goes along with it. Uh, we are going to have a writer in each of the eight countries' camps, including myself in uh, Finland and uh, Czech Republic. So um, my summer vacation has been almost non-existent. Uh, fair enough. Well, I guess that means we should probably segue right into talking about the World Cup, which uh, is coming up by the time you hear this, provided you're hearing it when it comes out, uh, is in the middle of September. And it's uh, six teams, right? There's the U.S., Canada... Czech Republic, Russia, Finland, I'm sorry, eight teams, Finland, Sweden, the North American under 23, right? Yeah. And then a European team that comprises of all the players that aren't associated with the other aforementioned European teams. Is that also correct? Yeah, the, the North American team is actually uh, under 24 team, 23 and under. Uh, okay, got it. Cool. You so, can be 23 on that team by the day you... You can't be 24 by the date the tournament starts, which is September 17th. Now, there are, well, there are people who are predicting that that North American young team could actually win the entire thing. And you think about it, I mean, they're going to have Austin Matthews. They could potentially have Austin Matthews, Jack Eichel, and Connor McDavid as their three top centermen. <laughs> Kind of ridiculous. Yeah, no, it's you know when when they announced it, you know a lot of people uh, kind of pooed the whole thing and and sort of you know the, not uh, traditional, non traditional, and everything else that went along with it, and that they were going to be lambs to the slaughter. And then you know you kind of saw it develop, and and there's going to be some pretty good players on that team. The other guy that you forgot is their their top defenseman is likely going to be Shane Goss to be here, who was phenomenal last year. Goss is fair. Really Shane Gostisphere. I got hold on. Uh, Shane Gostisphere. Say it correctly. I got you. Shane Gostisphere. You're still messing Uh, it up. Gostisphere. All right. (laughs) You got me. (laughs) All Um, right. Continue. But the biggest question, and it still remains the biggest question, is what they're going to do for goaltending in a in a very short pressure-packed tournament. Now, Matt Murray answered a lot of those questions in the Stanley Cup final with the Pittsburgh Penguins. It'll be interesting to see if they replicate it, if he replicates that. Um, but to me, the biggest advantage they have is their youth. A, they have nothing to lose. They're playing with house money. And B, who gets ready the quickest for a new season? The young guys. I think they'll be the most in shape and the most ready to go and, and the most able to perform come September 17th. I think some other teams will still be kind of playing themselves into 
into 60-minute hockey shape. So to me, those are the two big advantages that they have, plus the aforementioned talent. Well, now I went to the last World Cup, which was two, 2004, right? Correct. I also was at that World Cup. I, I went I mean, to, we did not see each other or know each other. We there. did not even know each other there, but I went to every single game. I think I might have missed one, but I went Montreal, Minnesota, and Toronto. And, and it struck me, and I've been to, I went to the 2002 Olympics every game as well. So of those two tournaments, the 2002 Olympics and the 2004 World Cup, I felt that the brand and, and style of hockey played at the World Cup was better than the Olympics. Because even though it, it may have taken them a couple of games to get, to get you know, kind of get together with everybody, like they're all fresh. They've had a whole summer off to relax. Everybody's fresh, ready to go. Nobody has any lingering injuries or anything. So I thought the hockey was phenomenal. No, the hockey was good, and I thought the other thing that was key about that tournament was that it was played under NHL rules, um, and it's a different brand of hockey, and it was played on an NHL rink, much like this tournament is going to be. Uh, the 2ousandandtwo tournament, the Olympic tournament, was played on international, international rules ice. and international ice. Yes. Yes, and it, it changes the game, um, but uh, I, I thought that that played a big part into it. And uh, this will be my third World Cup, and I was at the 96 for parts of the 96 when I didn't cover the whole thing. I covered one of the three games in the final and some preliminary games that were in uh, New York and Philadelphia. Um, and that remains one of the greatest hockey tournaments I've ever seen, and obviously a lot of that has to do with the fact that the Americans upset the Canadians in the final and, and kind of came out of nowhere. That was really, for, for the next generation of Americans, that was the 1980 hockey moment for for the younger generation, the guys that are in the league now, the top American players talk about those players that played in 96, the Madonos, the Chelios, the Richters, much like Keith Kachuk, we talked about the 1980 team. Sorry, yeah, Sorry? Keith Kachuk, whose son, I assume, is going to be playing yeah. on the North American team as well? Yeah, yeah, no, Keith Kachuk, Billy Guerin, all those guys, and they really have become kind of that next, signature moment in USA hockey was 1980 and all those guys were inspired by the 1980 team that came out. Leach was another one. And then now this next generation that's coming in, we're all inspired by that 96 team. So the world, the world cup has produced some of the, some, some great, great hockey in its three iterations. Yeah. I think it's going to be a phenomenal tournament. So realistically, I mean, I mean, I do think the North Americans, the North American team has a, a legitimate shot. But I mean, obviously, it, all these tournaments, all these international tournaments always come down to Canada and Russia for the, for the most part. Uh, I'm guessing that they are the two front runners and, and with people kind of thinking Canada has the, the edge. Is that what you, you I, see, or you're hearing or? I think Canada is the unquestioned favorite going into this tournament. The 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 format um, gives other teams a puncher's chance. Um, the fact that the way that they're doing it is there's two two pools. You play round robin, top two teams advance, play in a one game knockout um, semifinal, and then the two winners play in a best of three final. Um, on any given day, any team can be knocked out of a one game uh, one game uh, one off game you know talk about sweden uh when they lost to belarus uh in the olympics in vancouver um 
you know, so that kind of evens the field a little bit. But there's no question Canada's the best team in the tournament. They, they've won the last two Olympics. And in 2014, that was the most dominant performance I've seen a team put together all over the ice. They were incredible. Um, the team that I think that would probably give them the most trouble is going to be Sweden. Yeah, and that I would, was the team they played. Yeah. They played in Sochi in the in the gold medal game. Canada won three nothing. I don't even know if it was that close, but the the Capitals were out were without Nick Backstrom, who had been wrongfully suspended, um, and he, obviously he'll be playing for the Swedes this year. Um, and it'll be a little bit of a different game. So I'm interested to see how those two teams stack up. Well, uh, yeah, I mean, I mean, look, every the, the interesting thing about this tournament more so than like the World Championships or even the Olympics for that matter. I mean, there are no bad teams. I mean, they've got eight solid, amazing teams. So yeah, it's it is pretty wide open. Even though I think you know the the Canadians obviously are the are the prohibitable favorites. A hometown in hometown in Toronto and the whole nine yards. But yeah, it's it's. Yeah, I mean, I, I'm gonna also- I'm gonna try to go to every game. It looks like so. Uh, I'm very much looking forward to it. Yeah, it'll be all right. It'll be a great two weeks in, in Toronto. They're doing a lot of stuff around the tournament. You know, they're going to have a fan village every day while they're there. They're going to have some, some music and some other acts, um, a lot of different and, – and, I mean, you've been in Toronto when there's been big games. You were there for the last World Cup. Um, there, there's very few cities in the world that embrace a big hockey moment as, as well as Toronto does. So, you know, it should be fantastic, but that's also one of the things that's going to go against Canada. I mean, there's not the same amount of pressure that there was in Vancouver, but they are going to be the hometown team. They're going to be the team that has to put on a show and, and the other teams are able to kind of use that to their advantage. And then, like I said, with the way the tournament shaped, you know, you have one bad game, and any team can have one bad game, and you're in a whole world of trouble in this tournament. Well, now, I may argue with you a little bit on this. Now, I, I love Toronto. It's in a phenomenal city. I love being there. Every time I'm there, I have a great time. It's a great hockey town. But I would argue with you that Montreal might be a crazier hockey place to be because I went to, obviously, the, the, world, the last World Cup, and the early, I forget what it was, but the first couple of games were in Montreal at, at uh, Bell, Bell Center. And yep. so I was there with my pal Lizzie Borden, singer from Lizzie Borden. He came up kind of at the last minute, so I couldn't get him into my hotel. So I booked him at another hotel, like, you know, a couple blocks from, from Bell Center. So we went to the, ga- the, the last game in Montreal, which Canada won. And it was like, their, I can't remember the second game of the tournament or first game of the tournament, whatever it was. So the next day I see him at the airport and I said, you know, hey, how, you know, how was your night? And he's like, terrible. I didn't sleep. I go, why? He said, they partied all night long in Montreal on the streets right below him. He unfortunately was staying on the, the, the main drag there in Montreal. So they partied all night long. And this is for like a, like the first, they weren't winning the tournament. They weren't even winning a, a, a playoff game or a, yeah. <laughs> like the first or second round robin game. And they partied all night long celebrating that win in Montreal. So. Yeah, no, look, Montreal's a great city. You know, you could put it in almost any of the Canadian cities, and, it, and it'd be fantastic. But but the one thing that you get in Toronto more so than in some of those other cities is you get a bigger international bump. Yes, this is very true. And, I mean, look, they're going to be a phenomenal host. It's going to be an incredible tournament, that is for sure. Uh, and it's interesting that here in the United States of America that it's on ESPN, our good friends over there, Pierre Lebrun and Scotty, so they'll they're going to be covering it quite uh, quite well. But it's it's kind of I mean uh, you know is this 
why, why is ESPN covering this? Well, why are they getting involved in hockey all of a sudden when they've been so out of it for so long? Well, I, I think it's a good business decision. I mean, I think, you know, you look at the metrics of, of what hockey's delivered in the last couple of years, it's kind of grown um, in its viewership. It's always had a good demographic. Whenever anybody talks about whatever hockey's numbers are, the demographics for advertisers and for broadcasters are, are off the charts. Um, and, and so, you know, I, I think that, and then the business of, of having live programming, especially to be able to stream and, and to put on different platforms has become so competitive that I think everybody wants to get into everybody else's business. You know, NBC made a huge commitment to soccer when, when they got into the EPL and then everybody wanted to get into their business because they saw that it was going to work. And I, and I think that's part of this whole thing is, you know, NBC also made a huge investment in the NHL when they signed their latest deal for NBC, SN, and some games on NBC. And I think other networks kind of saw that. And, and the bidding now for, for any live programming is unbelievable. Um, you know, you could Fox was involved in, in the bidding and, and you know, some non-traditional entities are also involved because of the way that you can you can stream content now and you can use it to kind of cross promote. So um, it was, a, I think, it was a really good business time to be able to have this product and to be able to take it to a number of different people and say, "Hey, what can you do with it? And what are you willing to, you know, what are you willing to pay for it?" Now, I know that the NHL has uh, how many more years with NBC now? Is it another six years or something like that? I was going to say five, but it may be six. Five or six, but I mean, is this ESPN kind of throwing their hat in the ring or put, to, you know, sticking their their toe in the water to see, you know, how hockey is, and maybe they make another pitch for hockey again when the NBC deal is up, or is it? I don't. Is that fair to say? Yeah, no, I think of course. I think anytime you you get the rights to something and you you see how they perform. And, and you know you kind of see what you how your business model works and and what you can do with it. Uh, you know, look, ESPN's looking for programs all the time. And they become this behemoth, um, and uh, they have to feed that beast. They want to do a lot of streaming, um, a lot of streaming deals. A lot of people are you know walking away from the traditional cable network and television, so to speak. And when you look at ESPN three, where some of these games are going to be, a lot of them are going to be streamed there, plus be on ESPN. And ESPN too, you know that that's the next frontier. And, and in order to attract people to that service, you know, I think you need to diversify as much as you can. If you ever go to ESPN three and you look at the, what they offer streaming wise, it's a cornucopia of of niche sports. I mean, you can watch almost anything you want: rugby, uh, you know, cricket almost anything in the world that you want to watch it. And that's, what's attractive about a service like that. If you're going to eventually, you know, if that moves to more of a pay service, than just saying, Oh, I'm a cable subscriber so I can watch it on my computer. If you can now all of a sudden say, Hey, I'm going to pay so much a month and I can watch all my sports here. You know, the more that you have to offer, the better off you're going to be in that market. Now, part of your very long winded answer there was sounded like you were gargling razor blades. So, I don't know where you are, but don't move from where you are right now. <laughs> All right. Otherwise, you're. I will sit stock still. I will sit stock still for the rest yeah. of this podcast. Yeah, good. If it gets, yeah, if it, if it happens again, we'll we'll fix it. But, uh, but it was, I was listening to your to your answer, and I was like, wow, he's got a, he's got some crazy death metal sort of vocals going on here. 
I'm working on him, dude. In my next career, uh, okay. I still think I have a few useful years as a as a death metal vocalist. Like good. Now we always make predictions on this podcast with for the NHL and various other forms of sports sometimes. So I suppose we should also make predictions for the World Cup. So I'll, I'll let you start with your uh, who. Let's let's go. The just there's only eight teams, and let's just pick the two teams in the final and the winner. How's that? Uh, I think, uh, like we talked about, I think, you know, it's a chalk pick, but I think I'm going to go Canada-Sweden. See, I'm going to say the same yeah. thing. I hate that we're going to – I hate that we – I hate when we agree on these things. It's very annoying. So, can, I, no, I, I know, but I think – I agree Canada-Sweden as well. Who, you know, who, and whom wins? To me, it would be interesting who the other two teams are that are in those semifinals. Um, you know, we've talked about Team North America – uh, team USA to me is a really interesting team. I mean, they built an NHL team. They did not go the All Star route. Um, you know, they kind of they built a team that John Tortorella, their coach, would be comfortable deploying. They have penalty killers. They have you know face off specialists. They have all those things. Now, a team like Canada has all of that just by picking the top twenty three guys. You know. Patrice Bergeron is one of the top 23 guys, but he's also the best defensive forward in the league, possibly. Andrzej Kopitar. You East Coasters. He's one of Canada's 23. He wasn't picked because he's a good defensive forward. He was picked because he was one of the best 23 players. I think the Americans picked some some clear role players. Justin Applicate is on this team. I don't know that he's one of the 23 best Americans, but he, he, he feels... He checks off some boxes for the Americans who believe it's going to be an NHL-style tournament and want an NHL-style team. Um, so it's to me, it's really interesting what the Americans are going to end up but, doing. By the way, by, um, by NHL-style, you mean dirty? No, I, I just mean that... Because that's it's just an advocator is the dirtiest player in the league, I think. Well, no, but that is not what I just mean, that it's going to be a grinding type of game. Um, you know, a lot of cycling. It's not going to be that free-flowing game that you tend to see more in the Olympics. Um, it's going to be a straight north-south game, I think, a little bit more. So, like I said, the Americans made a decision and they decided to build a team um, and fit all their pieces together instead of picking 23 pieces and then figuring out how they fit together. Um, and it's two different philosophies on how you build your team for a short tournament. But the one thing the Americans do have, and we mentioned it before, is their goaltending is as good as anybody's in the tournament. And, you know, any of the three guys that they have, if Bishop's healthy enough to to be effective, um, Ben Bishop from the, from the Tampa Bay Lightning, if any of, any of those guys, like we said before, could, you know, dominate this tournament, I think Corey Schneider has the ability to, to just own a two-week tournament if he's the guy they end up going with. And you're more than familiar with what Jonathan Quick can do. Um, in a short period of time. So to me, that's that's kind of the American's trump card. Um, so I'm interested to see if it pays off in the short round robin. And then, you know, you have, you have the Finns who are always a uh, very difficult out. And who knows what's going to happen with Team Europe. To me, that's kind of a crazy team. I don't know how you kind of put all those pieces together, all the different nationalities. I don't know what the unifying when you're the coach of that team, I don't know how you go in that locker room and, and you unify those 23 guys to say, hey, this is what we're going to do and this is why we're going to do it. And, and I think that's a huge part of what happens in a tournament like this. But is it really that different from you know the other uh, 
the other teams, I mean, granted they're all from different countries, but I mean, it's just a bunch of different players. I don't know. I, I, I think that's an interesting yeah. team. You know, Team North America and Team Europe are really interesting because they both have an awful lot of talented players on there. But you just don't, yeah, you just don't know how it's all going to really come together. No, and the difference to me in the two teams is, is like the the North American team. There's going to be a weird dynamic there because there's guys on that team that don't like each other because they've since they've been 16 years old they've played against each other in international hockey and that the young Canada U.S. rivalry that that under 17 under 18 World Junior rivalry is one of the fiercest in sport. It it dilutes a little bit as it gets older because. And at the full national level, Canada still kind of treats the Americans like their little brother, and, and they have rivals with Sweden and Russia. But at that youth level, they're as fierce a rival as they come. The New Year's Eve game that they play every year in the World Juniors is a highlight of the hockey calendar. So these kids have all grown up really not liking each other and playing against each other. And it's a very condensed bracket, so there's a lot of... Uh, animosity that's been developed between players on that team and, and the coaches there are going to have to overcome that. To me, the European team's a little bit different in that it's, it's just a collection of players from all over the place and there is no unifying message. For the North Americans, the unifying message is for a lot of these guys, hey, I should be on the senior team and the rules didn't let me be on the senior team, so here's how we're going to beat them. For the European team, the only argument is, hey, they didn't let... They didn't let Slovakia into the tournament, or they didn't let Norway into well, the tournament. Well, but, but that's only that's only a few pieces of the roster. There's real no unifying thing that kind of draws all those players together. I'm going to disagree with you because there is one interesting underlying fact for Team Europe that everybody, well, you're overlooking, maybe not everybody else, but their goaltender is going to be Frederick Anderson, who is now Toronto's number one goaltender, and the tournament is in Toronto. So it's going to be an interesting little proving ground for him because obviously he wants to play extremely well because this is where he's going to be playing in front of all the people he's going to be playing for. So, you know, and he's, you know, seeing him play a lot in Anaheim, he's a phenomenal goaltender. And if he gets hot, I don't know that there's a goaltender in the NHL that's better than him when he gets hot. Now that's, there's yet another key of like, well, that's kind of an interesting thing. And that could, to me, that's the galvanizing thing for that team is like, hey, you know, our goaltender is Toronto's new goaltender and we're in Toronto. There we go. Yeah, no, for sure. But I think that, uh, look, they're as talented as they are and they have a lot of talented players on their team and nobody more talented than Anze Kopitar, who in the Sochi Olympics in 2014 played with a bunch of guys nobody had ever heard of. I know. Look at how well Slovenia did with just him and nobody else. Yeah, and then look, they were were hard out for everybody and he was one of the most dominant players. But the the thing in this tournament is they're, they're not nearly as deep as the top teams. Um, you know, when, when you get down to 560, even maybe four, and you get down to, you know, bottom four forwards, they don't have answers for what Canada and Sweden have. I mean, that's just a fact of of what it is. Maybe they're competitive that way in a short tournament, but they're not as deep and, and they can't go as deep. You know, the, the matchups, I think, as the tournament goes on will not be in their favor. 
Yeah, I mean, I, I do agree with that, but I do think that that that, that could be interesting. I mean, it really is a pretty wide open tournament where, uh, like you said earlier, I mean, almost any team if they get a hot goaltender can can roll through and and do really well. So it, it that's the good thing. It's going to be super competitive. Every, every team is good, and you know, if any team has a down night, they could certainly certainly lose. So obviously, you pick Canada, Sweden. So I'm I'm you didn't say who was going to win between those two teams. No, I didn't, and and here's where uh, I'll go a little out on the limb. I I think Sweden gets their revenge. Ah, okay, good. Well, at least we could not agree on that. I I'm, I'm going to say that Canada does win. Yeah. But uh, but look, I I wouldn't take whatever money I have in my pocket right now and go bet it on Sweden. Um, but if 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 I had to pick at this moment, uh, and maybe it's heart more than head, like. I know it would rain on everybody's parade in Canada, but I think it would be a great story for the Swedes after losing the the, the Olympic gold to, to come into Canada's hometown and, and beat them in a tournament that everybody thinks Canada's going to own. Now, uh, so I can't, uh, we can't make a bet with whatever money you have in your pocket for Canada and Sweden, no? No, I won't bet it because then I'll be broke. Oh, okay. Well, we don't want that to happen. If I lose, yeah, because we need to. You know, you need to be buying some rounds in uh, in Toronto when we're Yeah, there, the, so. you know what? It's not a lot of money. I can guarantee you that. You know what? We should make a bet, and I'll bet whatever's in my pocket against whatever's in your pocket, and I think we'll be good. Well, but I could say that I, I have. I could say I could say I have. Side. I could say I have twenty dollars in my pocket, and then there you go. So you never know. Um, <laughs> So yeah, so that's so it's going to be a fun tournament. Everybody should t- tune into it. In what I'm, it's going to be on in every country. So uh, wherever you are listening to it, TSN in Canada, ESPN in the USA, and all of the other normal hockey networks all a- across the world. So definitely check that out. It's going to be a fun tournament. And you uh, know what's going to be we'll great be about there. it is it's going to have a, a heavy, heavy metal misconduct feel to it. Um, Many former guests are going to be involved in the coverage of it. Uh, Yanni Ninema is going to be doing the Finnish uh, TV color. Uh, he did that during the Stanley Cup final. It was fantastic. Um, and uh, was a pleasure to see him throughout the final. Uh, Scott Burnside, as you mentioned before, and Pierre Lebrun from ESPN, who were guests on our podcast numerous times in Pierre's case, uh, will be covering a free ESPN. Bruce Arthur, who was on during the Stanley Cup final when it was in Tampa, is involved. Um, so, uh, you know, covering it for the Toronto paper there. So several former Metal Misconduct guests uh, are going to be involved in bringing that product to to the masses. And to give a little bit of a shout-out to my good friends at Violet Gentlemen, George Peros, who's also been on our podcast, they're going to be up there actually pre-tournament uh, the week before. They're doing some pop-up stuff, and there's uh, they're part of the Goon Two screening, which is happening in Toronto, right, right before the, I believe it's the Toronto Film well, that's Festival. That's the Toronto Film Festival, right? Yeah, it was the week before. So, uh, so they're going to be up there. F- Unfortunately, they're not staying. I, George, I think, might be staying for some of it, but some of the other guys I know over there are not. But they're going to be there the week before. So, if you're in Toronto the week before, they're they're doing. Uh, there's a couple of there's the the Goon Two screening, and there's some other th- thing that they're involved with. They have a whole bunch of stuff. But go to their website, violentgentleman.com, and They'll give you all the uh, parameters of where they're going to be. So I'm going to try to get up there a little bit early, maybe for a couple of days, and see what's going on. I'm I'm anxious to see Goon too. So yeah, the first one was a was a good film. So Sur- surprisingly excellent. 
I'm so sorry? I said surprisingly excellent. Yeah, no, and the, the book that it was based on, which I had read well before the movie was made, was uh, was really good. So I was uh, I was hoping that the movie would do it justice, and for the most part, it did. So now, with the second half of this month months, God, I can't say month, this month's podcast. Say that five times fast. Uh, we're going we're to both, we're, we're going both tripping over our words today. Yeah. We're we're going to uh, we're going to do something we really haven't done on on this show, and that's actually interview my co-host of Metal Misconduct, the mysterious Sean Rourke, and find out how he got to the point of running NHL.com and uh, well, he's really running the entire NHL, but nobody knows that. So, so, so anyway, so Sean, you grew up in uh, Rhode Island, right? I did, and, and I've done a pretty good job, I think, of hiding the, the accent for the most part. I think you've heard it sneak out a couple of times, um, but for the most part, I've kind of buried that accent that I grew up with. I, I moved away from Rhode Island uh, for college. I went to Syracuse, and then I moved to New Jersey soon after, and I've been here. I've been here in New Jersey longer than I grew up in Rhode Island. I don't know. I think people would argue that that makes me a New Jerseyite, but uh, I'm fighting that classification. Why? Well, a fellow Rhode Islander who also doesn't really have too bad of an accent is my good friend, Mr. Chris Santos, chef of Beauty and Essex and Vandal and everything and on Chopped. He's another Rhode Island guy. And you guys are about around the same age and both metalheads. So I got to figure that you must have been at a lot of the same shows because you all went to the shows at the living room up there in Rhode Island, right? The living room, uh, Club Babyhead, which yep, became yep. Club Hell. Uh, I saw some good shows when I was a little bit older at the what was the station before it, the tragedy happened yep. there. We yep. called a couple of things before that. I saw some shows there. Um, you know, uh, we drive to Worcester occasionally uh, to go to the Palladium. Um, so yeah, we probably were in some of the, some of the same. I, I guarantee. Shows. I guarantee it because, like I said, you guys Lupo's are hotel. Yep. Um, yeah, no, at Rocky Point, we used to see, I saw one of my favorite metal bands, except uh, I saw them play at Rocky Point, which was at an amusement park in, in Warwick, Rhode Island. Um, and on a Friday night, they would do they would do concerts. And one week, I remember one week, it was we were there, and it was Corey Hart doing uh, sunglasses at night. And then the next week, it was Accept. And, like, you couldn't get anything <laughs> more different than the two of those. Um, and uh, that was the first time I had seen Accept and the first time I saw Udo in person. And I, I, I still remember to this day looking at him and going, how the hell does that voice come out of that guy? It, <laughs> it was one of the fucking things I've ever seen um, and one of the best shows I've ever seen to this day, um, and I've never stopped listening to him. So it, it's those really kind of weird things like that you walk into um, that make you fans of th certain things, and, and that was one of the defining moments, I think, in my musical uh, evolution. Now, while you were growing up there, did you uh, did you play hockey? Did you play like organized hockey? I did. I played. Uh, I played until I was sixteen. Uh, I played West Warwick, which is the town I grew up in. I played in their house league uh, one year out, and then I nobody would play goalie, so I played goal. Um, got halfway decent at it, played on a few travel teams, and then uh, I went to Bishop Hendrickson, which is one of the bigger hockey-playing schools in Rhode Island, and um, 
tried out freshman year. There were five goalies that tried out for freshman hockey, never mind the rest of them, and realized that my odds were pretty short and soon after my career came to an end. So, you know what they always say, if you can't do it, write about it or teach. So I decided to write, and uh, that's what I've been doing ever since. Were there any famous people on that team? Or did you lose that to any famous goaltenders? Uh, else not or? on that team in particular. So the, the big thing in Rhode Island is uh, – Mount St. Charles is is the most famous hockey program maybe in the country, but in New England, it, when I was growing up, it was unbelievable. Uh, Matthew Schneider went to Mount St. Charles. Carl Snow went to Mount St. Charles. They've, they've produced several NHL players, um, and Henriken was always right behind them, always lost in the state final. Uh, Mount St. Charles won like 21 in a row, I think. And so one of the years I was there, I think maybe when I was a freshman, uh, Henriken had a forward line of uh, Stephen King, who ended up playing for the Anaheim Ducks. Um, uh, who else was on that team? Um, there were three NHL guys. Uh, Kramer was another one who, who played out for uh, San Jose. And the third one, I want to say it was David Emma, but I, I don't know if that's true but all three of them ended up playing the nhl they were all in the same line at hendrickson and they couldn't beat mount st charles so three nhlers on the same high school team and they still weren't good enough to beat their rivals so um there were a lot of famous kids that came through both those schools um hockey wise but mount st charles pretty much dominated now when did you start to become a journalist and, and how did that how did that road lead to there well, I was, like I said, I was always interested even when I was playing. You know, you always think that you're going to, you know, play in the NHL and you're going to win the Stanley Cup and you're going to do all those things. Um, but reality comes at different points for everybody. And I always realized ever since I was a young kid that I wanted to do something in sports. And what I really wanted to do was I wanted to be like uh, Bob Costas and I wanted to do sports play-by-play, but my aforementioned accent was much worse when I went to Syracuse, um, and I took a couple of broadcast classes, and my, my advisor gently told me that I should probably think of another career because my accent was going to get in the way of having any kind of national platform, um, and that's when I kind of migrated to print journalism, which I had always loved, you know, read the newspaper every day, the Providence Journal, and, and just read everything I could. Um, and I, I moved into print journalism and, uh, you know, hoped that I could do something with that. But as a young kid, as a teenager, you don't really have a plan. I didn't do anything to prepare myself for that. And when I graduated, I didn't have many prospects and, uh, eventually, uh, uh, a peer from Syracuse reached out to me and said, hey, you want to come work in New Jersey at a small uh, starter paper and uh, I can get you in. And the, the get-in job was uh, to do obituaries and community news. So three days a week I had to uh, take all the death notices from all the area funeral homes and then decide which one was the most compelling story and then reach out to that family and write a story about the person who had just uh, just passed passed away and that was kind of that was the litmus test to see if you had the chops to a make those phone calls and b turn them into compelling stories and if you could do that the thinking was that you could ask a goalie if you gave up the goal in overtime or you could ask a town council person why they voted for or against something and uh you know it washed out a lot of people but by that time i was pretty 
pretty invested in wanting to be in the newspaper business. And I did that for nine months before I got to write my first sports story. So, um, and from there, it just kind of advanced from local sports to college sports to fill in beat writer on every beat, like the backup guy to 1994 when our hockey writer left us, everybody on the staff, if they wanted to cover hockey and they all passed. And I was doing high school football at the time and I said I would do it. And I actually had to do it around my high school football um, duties because at that paper, high school football was a higher profile job than covering the Devils and the Rangers. Now, why is it that so many media people have all come from Syracuse? It seems like that's... That's what they, it's almost like if you go to Syracuse, you get a job in media somehow. What is there a reason for that? Do they have an amazing program up there or what, what's the, what's the reason behind that? Well, they do, they do have an amazing program. They, uh, they, um, obviously their broadcast journalism program is, is unparalleled and, and even their print program, you know, Missouri's another one there. There's several schools that have really good journalism programs. I think the biggest thing is, and I know this was the case for me because like I said, I was not, uh, I was not the most ambitious person when I was at college. I didn't do any internships. I didn't work for the student newspaper. I just kind of thought everything would come to me. Um, and and so I, when I entered the workforce, I wasn't really prepared, um, as well as some of the, the people I was competing against. But the fact that I was able to put that I had a Syracuse education on my resume got me in a lot of doors. And then what happens is it's such a big school with so many tentacles that no matter where you go, there's always somebody in wherever you're interviewing who is also a Syracuse alum. And you know how that works, right? If it's down to two guys, you're kind of more comfortable with the guy who you know what their training was. Um, so the biggest thing that Syracuse did for me was just gave me that credibility as I went into the business without any clips, without any real work experience other than what I had done at that university. Um, it, it got me indoors that maybe I wouldn't have got in otherwise. And then it was up to me to, to make the best out of them. Like I said, you know, that first nine months to a year, I was at the, it was the North Jersey Herald and news, um, which is kind of merged a little bit and is a little bit different paper than it was then. It was in, uh, Northern New Jersey, Patterson, Clifton area. Um, I had to make my own, you know, there was, I think there were eight of us that started on the obituary desk together. Like I said, doing community news and obituary and, uh, only two of us ever made it to actually writing stories. The other one, amazingly enough, became a, a music, uh, critic for the paper for several years and, and pretty much, um, passed on all his, uh, all the metal CDs that he didn't want to listen to, uh, on to me. So at that time it was actually cassettes. Um, so, uh, that was a good, uh, a good penny of that job. So now you go from <clears throat> the exciting, uplifting job of writing obituaries, working your way all the way up to starting to cover hockey at the newspaper. How does, how and when do you, well, basically how, how do you make the leap eventually to get to the NHL? Well, again, you know, it's, it's, I think it's a lot like the business that you're in. A lot of it is, you know, you need to have talent. There's no question about that. But then you need to have connections and you need to, um, you know, you need to be able to kind of leverage those things. So, um, you know, I covered the Devils and the Rangers for three or four years with the paper. And I wasn't really looking to do anything else. I mean, I was, I was in my mid-20s. I was covering uh, 
I already covered uh, two Stanley Cup finals. My first year, the Rangers went to the Stanley Cup final and won. My second year, the Devils went to the Stanley Cup final and won. Um, so, you know, there was nothing pushing me to do anything else. But several people that I had met and become friends with on the Rangers and the Devils beats had moved on. And actually, uh, this this uh, Rich Libero, who worked for one of the um, – Westchester papers had moved on from the devils and he was tabbed to be the first editor of, or one of the first editors of foxsports.com when Rupert Murdoch decided he wanted to try and take on ESPN and, and especially on the online side. Um, and it really was his first TV move too to, uh, to take on ESPN. That's when he started the Fox soccer channel and, and did a number of other things. And, uh, Rich was familiar with my work and he needed some people to do some writing for him. Um, and he approached me about doing it and I had no idea at that time what online was. Um, I didn't even know how to get on to actually see the site at that point. It was, uh, 1998. Um, so it was an unbelievable education for me. And I did that for, uh, three years uh they moved to la where they are now um i did not want to make that move and as that was happening richard moved on and he had moved to uh the nhl and he was able to bring me aboard here and that was in 2000 and i've been here ever since 16 years at the nhl that's that you've gone through a lot of various things like of all the stuff that you've covered in those 16 years I guess what's the the hardest story you had to cover, and what's the one that you feel is the best one, or the most fun, or whatever, however you want to take that one. I mean, that's both both answers are really are really tough. I mean, there's so many stories. Um, you know, I, I tend to. Uh, when we cover big events, uh, we have such a big staff there. You've been around our staff when we're covering a big event, um, but there's usually a lot of, uh, of fighting uh, in a way to to cover certain aspects of, like, say, a Stanley Cup final. You know, everybody wants to do the winning room. Everybody wants to do the MVP. And I tend to gravitate a little bit more toward the losing side when it gets to that point. Um, because I think the better stories sometimes come out of that. They maybe don't get read as much, and they certainly don't get played up as much. But to me, that's where you know the the real emotion is, and and where you know if you work a little bit at it, you can you can find a really good story, and you can find some really good brushstrokes to work with. Um, and there's not as many people that want to do it. So, um, you know, I, those are, those tend to be the stories that I kind of gravitate towards. Um, and, you know, as far as the, the best things that I've done, I, I think, you know, anything that involves a long run, you know, like this year I covered San Jose for all four rounds of the playoffs. I had never done the West coast for four rounds. Um, unbelievably hard. The travel is incredibly hard. Um, the, the time away from home, never getting back into your own bed is, is unbelievable. Even the teams don't go through that every four days at the most, they're back in their own beds. And, and for me, it was 53 out of 59 days being away from home. Um, incredibly difficult, but the ability to do that and to turn out product that, you know, you, you think is, is pretty good is, um, 
is amazing. And I, and I personally, I thought the best story that I wrote during that whole period was the three overtime game that San Jose played against Nashville in, in, uh, the second round. And it came after, you know, connecting flight and, you know, getting in early in the morning and, and not being at your best when you get to the game. And then to, you know, write something that, you know, a lot of people on deadline, you know, the original story has to be done when the game's over. Um, and then you go back and you add some quotes, but the whole thing is done within an hour of the end of the game usually. So to be able to do things like that, the adrenaline rush you get from that is kind of what makes all that other stuff worthwhile. You know, I'm never going to complain about my job, just like, Nobody ever wants to hear you complain about your job because we're both very lucky in what we get to do, but not everything that we do is as glamorous as, as what What, it's perceived to be. Well, yeah. What was that the trip where you had to sit in the middle seat? Uh, I did have to sit in the middle seat for, for that, uh, for that connecting flight through St. Louis after four hours of sleep because of the time change from San Jose to, uh, to Nashville to try and get there for some sort of practice. So, um, but yeah, like I said, the, they're all obstacles, right? You know, it's the same thing when you, when you go abroad for, for, um, festival season, right. And everything starts to go wrong. Like those are the, in the end, while you're going through them, they're horrendous and, and you can't believe you have to do them. But in the end, they're kind of the roadblocks that when you're all done, like it's not only the story that's there, but it's, everything that you got through to to kind of make it happen and, and that you, you take almost as much pride in as you do the final product now have you <laughs> have you told your daryl sutter story on on this podcast before i can't remember i don't uh i don't think so that was do, not do one you, of the highlights of do, my, you my it, do you want it do you want to tell your daryl sutter story well, you don't have to I think, I think i think we have to tell at least in a bridge bros and now that you brought it up i, I can't no comment it um but, well, these are, uh, but these are yeah, kind of the, the it, tough, the, the tough, the, this just shows you how difficult it is being a, a journalist sometimes you, and you, you know, you have to do stuff like you had to do there. Yeah, no. And, 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 you know, and that is part of it. You never know you're in a live environment. You never know what you ask. Sometimes you ask the, this, what you think is the stupidest question and you get a whole story out of it. Other times you ask what you think is a really brilliant question and you get a two word answer out of it. So, you know, the ability to interview people, I I think is, um, is one of the biggest parts of this job. Um, and you know, there's a lot of good writers out there that are not great interviewers and there's a lot of great interviewers that can't put what they get, um, into, uh, readable form, um, as well as other people. And I, I think the best, people that do this job or people that can do a little bit of both. But so, yeah. And, uh, when the, when the Kings were playing the devils in the Stanley cup final, uh, what, three, four years ago, um, the Kings went up three, nothing. Yeah. 2012. And they lost game four in LA. And, uh, I was not writing that day. I was actually, uh, in charge of, uh, assigning stories and making sure everything with the site worked okay. And so I had no real preparation to ask questions because I did not think that would be part of my duties for that day. I was asked to ask questions because Daryl Sutter, the Kings coach came into the press area, uh, much earlier than anybody expected in the, the elevators at the, um, at the Kings building there are not uh, at the Toyota center or not. Staples, uh, Staples center, Staples center, Staples center. Sorry. 
that their practice rink is the Toyota Center uh, are not as speedy as everybody would like them to be, and that's that's in almost every building because you're on deadline, so you're writing right to the last second, and then you got to try and get downstairs with hundreds of other reporters. So nobody was in the formal press room when the interview started, and so I was asked to ask a question, and the only thing that I could think of at that moment was that I had read that the Kings had lost Game 3 in every series leading up to that. So they were at that point, they were 15 and 3 in the, in the playoffs. And the only three games they had lost had been game four of each series that they had played. Um, and that's what I asked Daryl Sutter is why his team had so much trouble closing out the opponents the first chance that they got. And uh, Daryl did not like the question. He pounded on the desk and asked if that was really the question. And then he left the press conference. Um, and this was all on TV. Um being picked up by the networks that were covering the post game. And uh, while that would have been bad enough, uh, several days later on uh, Hockey Night in Canada, which is the biggest show in Canada, Don Cherry does the between periods, revered figure. Uh, more people watch that than the game. People just tune in for that. He played the clip, did not identify me, thank God, uh, but played the clip and said, everybody says Daryl Sutter is churlish and has a bad attitude, and but would you act the same exact way if people asked dumb questions like this and then they cued right into my question? Um, so it was, uh, it was, everybody in the press box had a good chuckle at my expense and, uh, lesson learned to be more prepared, uh, when I'm asking questions and not to be so open-ended about something that could be interpreted the wrong way. Well, see, I find that whole story to be absolutely hysterical. And I think, honestly, no matter what you asked him, he was going to pound oh, his fist. Oh, I think fist. that was true, too. I you you could have asked him the best question ever, and he would have just pounded his fist and said, that's a ridiculous question, and stormed off. I mean, look at Jim Harbaugh the, the other week when he was in Michigan. You know, it could be worse. You could be the guy asking Jim Harbaugh questions where... I asked him a question about, uh, you know, there's three team members missing from the, the team photo. You know, what happened? And Harbaugh goes, well, uh, two of them are suspended. So the, the, the writer asks a follow-up question, says, well, how long are they suspended for? And he goes, we're going to handle this internally. And then the guy says, well, well who's the third player? What are, who are the names? And the guy's like, you asked too many questions, and this is ridiculous. This is why nothing, we can't get anything done, and it storms off. So I was listening to Jim Rome talk about it, and he was just like, well, what is up with Harbaugh? Like, the guy is asking him a question. That's his job as a reporter to ask him a question. The reason why people watch on TV and pay millions of dollars to all these people to, to coach and play sports is because people go to games and watch them on TV and the media the, are the ones that do that. So I always find it humorous that these guys have such a bad attitude towards the media. It's like, honestly, if, yeah, you, no, if it, it wasn't for the media, you wouldn't be coaching and making $7 million a year or whatever ridiculous amount of money you're making. Yeah, but you know what? Even that becomes theater at some point, right? Of like course. You look at Bill Belichick and, and, and that drives it's that all whole theater. narrative. And like Daryl, Daryl's quotes end up verbatim transcribed from every day, Daryl Sutter, and they're called Sutterisms now, right? Like yep. he's just become famous for these various Serbic answers and non sequiturs and, and everything that goes along with it. And I, I, I think, you know, if you understand where it's coming from, um, you work with that. Like not everybody is going to be as talkative as the guy that you, you know, that 
you're like, oh, I wish everybody was like this guy. If everybody was like that guy, there would be no other stories. You know, I think I think part of it is understanding the personalities of the people that you're interviewing and trying to to get the most out of them. And sometimes you're not going to get anything. And at some point, you cut your losses and you go someplace else to um, get your business done. Right? I, I I covered the kids in the first round of the series last year against the Sharks. And I was in virtually every Daryl Sutter press conference, but I don't know how much I used him where I just realized that I would be better off asking other people um, for the same information. And, of course, he has no idea that you were the guy that asked that question would never probably rem- even remember that, I'm sure. Oh, no, I think, I think you know, that was forgotten as soon as it happened. Um, at least I hope so. I always hope that whenever I make a bit of a fool out of myself and it happens. <laughs> happens often, does it? <laughs> it happens more than I would like, but I think it happens for everybody more well, than you well, like. I think at least the, once a month on this show it happens. Yeah, I think when you put yourself out there and you ask a lot of questions, that every once in a while you're going to put your foot in your mouth. You're going to confuse people. You're going to you know identify somebody by the wrong thing or have their wrong family facts or their wrong professional facts. You're going to cross guys up. Um, I think any time you do that on a regular basis, there's always, every once in a while you slip up, you hope only one or two people see it, um, and it's easily forgotten, and you hope it never ends up on national TV, but, you know, these things happen, and, and it's all part of, um, it's all part of this business, and I think that's why, um, more than maybe the general public, I think your peers understand when those things happen, that it wasn't malicious, that it, you're not dumb, that it's none of those things. It's just a perfect storm of, of whatever happened that day to make it happen. Now, obviously, and occasionally, oh, guys are, are not prepared and make huge mistakes, and there's no excusing for that. But I, I think the majority of the times, there's usually a reason behind it. Sure. Now, so you cover the, these guys. Obviously, your job as a journalist to cover it and make sure it goes. Now, do you develop any any personal relationships with them? Other guys that you've covered and you know you've started to hang out with a little bit, or is that kind of one? Is that a thing that you're not supposed to do because you have to remain the journalistic integrity or whatever? Yeah, I, I don't know if you're not supposed to do it. I, I, you know. I haven't done it very often uh, for a variety of reasons. Um, but, you know, you see these guys away from the rink. You see them out sometimes when you're out, uh, you know, especially if you're covering a series and the visiting teams in town for three or four days, they have to go out for dinner. Um, you know, you might run into them when, when you're going out for dinner. You tend to go to the same places. You talk to guys about, hey, you come to the city a lot. Where do you go for dinner? Where do you go have a drink? You know, you get some recommendations, and then you end up in the kind of the same places. Um, so, you know, I think that you're friendly, you're more friendly with some guys, um, than, than you might be with others. And as you, my job's become a little different in working for the league because I'm never embedded with a team, uh, long enough, um, to develop those kind of relationships that a beat writer would, um, anymore. So, you know, I kind of go in and out and it takes me a little while when I'm covering a team. So like I, again, I covered the Sharks this year. It probably took me around to around and a half to kind of establish myself as somebody that's going to be there every day and that they know where the questions I'm asking, they know where that's going to show up and they know kind of what my agenda is. And then you're 
you're good to go. But before that, you're kind of dependent on the people that you knew from before that maybe were traded into that team and stuff. So there's there's people in the league that, you know, I have a relationship with that when they see me, they, they know who I am and they know, you know, that I can be trusted or or whatever their opinion of me is. Um, and and your kind of your goal when you do this is to grow that every time because you know the guys talk and you know if a guy doesn't know who you are he's going to go ask somebody else and say who was that guy that was asking me all these questions and you hope that whoever he asks is oh hey that's Sean from the NHL he's a good guy he's always treated me well you know he's never um, never done anything that you know was underhanded or anything like that so it, it's more about that right it's about trying to always kind of keep your reputation in front of you and say you know i've never like we've all written bad things about guys but the 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 two overriding factors and i think even the players for the most part understand this is one you know a was it true and b was it not malicious and c and which might be almost as important as a and b is did he show up to answer for it um, and I think all three of those are important, right? That you're fair, that it's not personal, and that if you do do that, that you then show up in the locker room afterwards, you know, whether it's the next day or two days later, and kind of be there for whatever reckoning there might be. Right? Well, because it's very easy. It's very easy to write negative things about people when you never have to face them. Sure. Um, and it's not it's not as easy when you need to walk into that locker room the next day and that guy can say, I don't like what you wrote and, you know, I'm upset about it and whatever else. Um, it's much harder to have to face that than to, you know, be outside of that room and never have to go in it. Well, you've been doing it for 16 years now at, at the NHL, so I, I think you, you're you doing it the right way, obviously. So. Um. Oh, yeah, no, I, I, I think so, too. I'm just saying these are all kind of things that, that go into it. And my job at the NHL, again, is a little bit different because, you know, we're going to do things the way that we do them. And it's, it's not a beat writer mentality. We don't need to, you know, delve into every little thing that happens. We're kind of here to, to promote the players and, and tell their stories. And I, I think, you know, that's the most important thing in, in any entertainment field, you know, to me, the most important thing is what, they do on the ice and it's the same thing in the music business. It's, it's what they do on the stage and what they put on a record. But I'll tell you one of the reasons why I like the type of music I like more than maybe other types of music is because of the stories of the people that are involved and the personalities of the people that are involved in, in, more extreme music and heavier music and the ability to tell those stories, I think goes as far as, as anything else, you know, I would assume much like you, I grew up, you know, reading circus and reading all those magazines back in the heyday of print journalism when there were a ton of magazines, um, you know, where I go to Seven Eleven every two weeks and with my hard earned money for mowing the lawn or delivering papers would buy all the heavy, heavy rock and roll magazines and, and read about all these people. And especially then, because they weren't as accessible as they are now, to, it, it was very romantic and it was oh my God, these people are people that I don't know that I'll never know, but how cool are they? And, and that ability to tell those stories, I think is one of the most important things when you're trying to sell whatever entertainment product you're trying to sell. Everybody wants to identify with somebody and you just need to give them a reason to identify with the people that they need to identify with. Well, yeah, and since you are a big time metalhead, what are you listening to today or this week or right now? Uh, well, I'm not listening to anything right now because we're talking and that would be rude. Um, 
But uh, I thought you always were listening been... to something during this 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 show when we're recording it. So I always have to no, like, no, wake no. you up sometimes. So you're not listening. No, that that would that would oh, okay. not be. Uh, all right. That would not be cool. Um, and, well, not to not to blow your horn or anything, but the the new hammers is is hammers of misfortune is fantastic. I've barely taken it uh, out of my rotation, and you know, I mean, I love everything that that John's done, and uh, I'm one of his biggest supporters. But uh, I, I we, really we need think ten thousand more people like you. <laughs> we need yeah, ten thousand even more. Five, yeah, it's been five years to wait and it was worth it um and the same thing you know with the new revocation i think it's been really good um i just uh started listening to the new skeleton which they put out a new ep um i, I like that a lot and uh, uh this other band kind of do me this band called sulfur um which has been pretty good so that that's some of the stuff that i i've been listening to uh in in the last uh couple of weeks i think Nice. Well, we've gone beyond our allotted time, actually. So, with these two. Well, you know, Brian, how much I like talking about myself. Well, we found that out now today. We we should have we should have cut down on the World Cup talk and had more more time for you now. No, uh, the less we talk about me, the better. But <laughs> you know, everybody knows your life story, and I'm kind of the co-host in the background. So now. For our, our loyal listeners, at least they know why I get to share this podcast with you. Exactly. There's the, the some insight there. You can just look me up on Wikipedia or Google or whatever that nonsense is. Um, but anyway, yeah, that's cool. So there's now you know where Sean came from and <clears throat> some of his favorite stories, or at least some of my favorite stories of of his. So um, so anyway, we'll be up in Toronto next month. This well, this month September, uh, watching the World Cup of Hockey. So if you if any of you guys are up there, come out and say hello. I'm sure we'll be running around Toronto, hopefully having a good time, and more, most importantly, watching a lot of phenomenal hockey, which I'm extremely looking forward to up there. It should be, should be a great tournament. Hey, you know what we didn't mention before we go? The new Metallica song, and not only the new Metallica song, which is very good, but the fact that in the Spotify uh, documentary that they're doing, you're, the, you're playing the starring role. Well, I don't know about that, but but they did do that. There is, you know, Sean mentioned this uh, Spotify documentary, the Metallica, the early years. So if you go to Spotify, you can, uh, yeah, you have to find it a little bit. But but Spotify has been doing these documentaries on on large artists for for a while now, and they did a four part series on basically the the beginnings of Metallica all the way up through basically uh, I think it goes all the way through on Justice for All more or less. But they did a great job. I mean, I was lucky enough to play a little bit of, of a part in there, but I think that they did a really great job. And there's been so many any of these Metallica documentaries and books and stuff on the early years. And, and I've been involved with, with most of them probably. And I felt this is one of the better ones I've seen. I thought they did a really great job painting the picture and the, the guys from the band were great in it. And they had, you know, all the guys in there. So it's really cool. And yes, the new Metallica song I think is phenomenal. Yeah, no, it rips. It's, it's like old school, like um, whiplash almost. Yeah, it's like you know, it's it not bad for a bunch of fifty-year-old metal guys who don't don't have to put out something this heavy. So it, yeah, it's cool that they that they did that. And you know, people it's it kind of drives me crazy though. People still love to hate on Metallica a, a lot about stuff, but I don't know. I, I mean, for a band of of theirs, you have to think that they're one of the five or six biggest bands in the world. Like, like it would be like if you two went back and made the Joshua Tree record again or something i mean you know big bands don't really do that so the fact that metallic is going back to their roots and putting out something super heavy where james is cursing again and everything i love it i think it's amazing 
Yeah, no, I can't wait to hear the rest of it. Yeah, it's going to be good. Double double album with a whole bunch of there's like a, the the upgraded version of it. it has a million demos and riffs and stuff. It's a pretty cool package. So, yeah, I'm looking forward to uh, to hearing the whole thing as well and and seeing those guys when they get on the road. And but most importantly, I'm looking forward to Toronto and the World Cup. Yeah, man, it's it's coming. I I leave in uh, I leave in uh, a little less than two weeks to go to Helsinki and Prague for uh, pre-tournament games out there, um, and to kind of tell some of those stories. So I leave Labor Day weekend. I'm looking forward to it. Well, have fun over there, and uh, we'll obviously meet up in Toronto. And then when we come to you next month, we will be from Toronto interviewing somebody over there, and uh, it should be a pretty cool show. Awesome! I can't wait. It'll be good to see you again, man. Absolutely. Enjoy whatever little window of your summer is left. Yeah, well, what a, yeah, summer. I don't know what that means. But anyway, so thanks, everybody, for listening, and uh, we'll talk to you guys next month.